afternoon, and welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Scott Greeson, Conservation Director with Friends of the Eel River. The Eco News Report is an exclusive feature of KHSU, brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, the Eco News. Don't forget, you can find this show and other KHSU public affairs shows on the audio archives page at khsu.org. My guest today is Mark Lovelace, no stranger to these airwaves or to Humboldt County's ears. Today, Mark is a cannabis policy advisor for HTL companies? HDL companies. HDL companies. And is, of course, the former third district supervisor. Welcome to the Econews Report. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Yeah, I guess it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll see. The jury's still out. Yeah. <laughs> Only day two. Uh, and- you know, today's show is very much in the the spirit of a end-of-year review kind of retrospective and also assessment, maybe a little bit of looking forward. And what we want to do today is talk and think a little bit about the bigger picture of California's now legal cannabis industry, not so much the local numbers and details, but what's the context that Humboldt County's cannabis story fits into? And Of course, I'm approaching this from the perspective of a watershed and fisheries advocate. My organization, Friends of the O River, has a lawsuit active against the county of Humboldt over its commercial cannabis ordinance. We contend that that ordinance is insufficiently protective of Humboldt County's watersheds and fisheries. As I think we'll see in the course of this conversation, that's a perspective that's somewhat at odds, I think, with the larger conversation that's happening around the state where regulation appears to not be terribly popular. <laughs> but the the big picture, I think, is posed by a couple of major stories in the L.A. Times and in the New York Times in recent days that report that really the industry isn't turning out as well for California as we'd hoped. Gross sales are were less in 2018 than they were anticipated to be or than they were reported in, in 2017. What does it look like from your perspective, Mark, as somebody who's advising counties across the state? Well, first thing I think that everyone has to recognize in this is we're, we're just through year one. Right. The ability to become licensed, legal, permitted started just a year and a day ago. Right. And that's a very short time frame. So everything that's happened, you know, since then has been this very compressed time frame. There's a slow drip of players coming into the marketplace. We saw a rush of cultivation licenses initially and retailers. Mid-year, we started all seeing the the gaps that were happening, that you've got people growing cannabis and you've got people wanting to sell cannabis, but they can't talk to each other legally without going through a middleman, a distributor. Right. Uh, There's a lot of manufacturers that had to come online. And then there was testing that had to come into it. All the product had to be tested, even with a half-year grace period to allow product that had been untested to still enter the marketplace it's been very difficult getting all the pieces to fall together. And there have been some real bottlenecks, especially yeah. around testing. And yeah. Then, There's only, I think, you know. 32 licensed testers in all of California at this right. point. So we're very much in the early days of this new industry, which is strange to say in a place like Humboldt where pot has been the mainstay of the local economy for 40 years. Mm-hmm. It's well established. You know, I've thought a lot about in my years before I was on the Board of Supervisors when I was working on timber issues. Right. And this was in the early 2000s, and the Forest Practices Act had been passed in, what, 74? That sounds right. 76, somewhere in there. 
And there were still a lot of people in the industry who fundamentally were still resisting the idea that they were a regulated industry. We're talking about the timber industry. Yeah, the again timber now. industry yeah. that had been around forever. In the 1990s. Yeah. yeah. People had been cutting timber for you know hundreds of years, thousands right. of years. Right. People had been, you know, in Humboldt County, our industry had been around for you know well over 100 years. And the true regulation only happened in the 70s. Right. And it took over 25 years for all of the regulatory agencies to truly, you know, pull themselves together and work together and work with the industry to recognize that this is the new normal, is right. that we're all going to be regulated and that we're all going to play a part and we have to work together to make this work. So the idea that we should be looking for all of this kind of change to happen in one year with the cannabis industry is you know, just unrealistic. It's going to take some time. So having said that, it's clear that we have set up a new industry in California over the course of a year, and obviously some of it already existed. Mm -hmm. But let's just back to some of those numbers. Again, about $2.5 billion worth of legal cannabis was sold in 2018, which is about a half billion dollars less than 2017. We stand at and this is according to Green Edge, a sales tracking company in the New York Times. Meanwhile, we've got roughly 4,800 cultivation licenses in the state, maybe 530 retail storefronts, roughly 1,000 distributors, and maybe 50 testing labs, something in that order. How does this, this new industry stack up to the actual demand in California? And I guess the another larger question is, what are we doing with the estimated 15 million pounds of pot we're growing in California when our statewide demand is only two and a half million pounds? What's happening to all that? Well, it's a lot of it's leaving the state, obviously. A lot of it also is feeding the black market that is now being, in some ways, officially sanctioned by these prohibitionary counties and cities around the state. So what does that mean? Unpack that a little bit. All of the laws that, you know, created this regulated system in California, going back to MRSA and then MCRSA and now Prop 64, Malcursa, all of these All of which we can, we can yeah. sort of, but, but I think it's roughly accurate to say of the current law, we call it SB 94 because yeah. that was the vehicle that That's the one that it. captured everything and rolled it all together. Which has combined the Prop 64 that the mm -hmm. voters passed and legislative action that followed it. Yeah. And one of the fundamental pieces that was necessary to get buy-in from cities and counties on any statewide move to legalize and allow a regulated market was to allow counties and cities at their option to adopt the system as is, to modify it as they see fit, or to opt out completely. And so that meant that they can either just say, yep, state's going to do it, we're just going to let the state you know, regulate all these businesses within our area, and that's fine, or you know, it's going to be legal at the state level, but we want to only allow these kinds of businesses. We don't want any outdoor cultivation, or maybe we don't want any storefront retailers or something like that. They can decide which pieces they want, or they could just opt out completely. The vast majority of counties and cities still have complete bans on all commercial cannabis activities. So when you have neighboring counties and cities that are, you know, have a legal industry where it's being produced legally, you now have set up this kind of perfect storm in terms of the black market where it's legal to conduct all the aspects of this business and your customer base is now going to be coming from around the state from all these places where it's still illegal. 
So at the core of this SB94 sort of framework is this idea of very robust local control, that local cities and counties can really decide the extent to which they want to participate in a legal cannabis world. But as you're pointing out, there's an, a leakiness inherent in that because, yeah. of course, people from Palm Springs or Pasadena can always go to the city next door where they can buy what their own city wouldn't let them buy. And then there's another level to this, which is that at least in the relatively much more populous southern part of the state, there are active now a lot of businesses, storefronts, dispensaries that aren't actually licensed. Yeah. And that's where this – how this leakage happens. Okay. Um, there's – especially at the retail end, there are a lot of unlicensed retailers in California – most of that are at this point just non-storefront retailers or delivery services. Okay. And, you know, they'll show up on weed maps and you can mm-hmm. purchase from them. And then there's a lot that are just, you know, completely below board. Not uh, licensed at all. Yeah. Right. That are just facilitating the movement of cannabis from one place to another and sales from one person to another. And, you know, the evidence going into this grand experiment is indicated that there wasn't a shortage of cannabis in California. There were not a whole lot of people who were saying they really were looking forward to trying cannabis, but they just can't find any. And so now that we have the market set up to where it's far more easy to access it, even if you don't have it legally available to you in your own city, it's probably available someplace nearby. You can either drive to there to pick it up. Maybe you're within their delivery distance, or you know somebody who's going to be going to you know a neighboring county who's going to pick some up for you. It's moving around all below radar in that. So another important event was just this past December 10th, I think, the Bureau of Cannabis Control, one of the many different agencies mm-hmm. that now have a, a piece of the larger cannabis regulatory pie decided that these delivery services couldn't be banned. So there's actually an exception to this principle of robust local control. Mm -hmm. BCC is saying basically to the cities, well, you can ban cultivation, you can ban storefronts, but you can't ban a delivery service. So that seems like it's it's also going to have an impact on and that's the a overall yeah industry. that's a regulation that's been in the pipeline since I think June okay and every step along the way every time they revised their draft regulations counties and cities would all join together and say no 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 that's a bad one because you know that takes away our local control right I think that the lens through which the bureau has been looking at for that piece was the fundamental idea that. Anyone can grow it, you know, can grow their own, can possess it, and can smoke it in the privacy of their own home. And recognizing that there's a lot of people who may or may not have a medical need for it, but who don't have the ability to grow their own or don't have the, or realistically aren't going to for whatever circumstances, right. and don't have the reasonable ability to buy it nearby. And so I think they're looking at it in terms of making sure that everyone has the ability to access it through legal means. You have a right to possess it, so you have a right to buy it. Yeah, and even if your local, even if your city is saying no, that you can still buy it legally through a company that's going to deliver to you. So if you're just tuning in, my name is Scott Greeson. I'm the Conservation Director with Friends of the Eel River, and I'm talking today with Mark Loveless in his capacity as Cannabis Policy Advisors to HDL companies. So Mark, One of the stories about how local control is played out in practice is the kind of amazing story of Calaveras County. Mm -hmm. 
And that's one that I think at least people know mm-hmm. what happened there. Want to lay it out roughly? One really kind of the, the worst horror story out there of what can go wrong with local control yeah. is Calaveras County. Calaveras County was an area that had had a lot of cultivation starting to happen, but they did not have the the political, the same political sensibilities as on the North Coast where we're all used to it. Everyone knows people in the industry. It was more of an affront to the greater community up there to have this industry there. And so they weren't necessarily as welcomed, I guess. And so initially there were efforts to ban it, prohibit it, crack down on the industry. And then there was a change that happened. I talked with uh, former supervisor Michael Oliveira at length back in November about what had happened up there and kind of the ebb and flow of things. But and basically they legalized and yeah, then they, they legalized. Yeah. They they the saw that the there was season. more support for the industry than they thought there had been. Right. They had initially the supervisors up there had been all in with a group that you know was you know, wanting to ban it completely and then they saw, you know, wait a minute, you know, the voters actually are you know, going the other way. And so they kind of said, okay, let's change our minds. And we went with what the voters said. And then there was a political sea change on the board of supervisors there. Well, I think there was a recall election, actually. Yeah, yeah. there was a recall. Yeah. And led by you know, prohibitionist you know, anti-cannabis groups. Right. And that resulted in a significant backwards change. Right. I think so a couple they, of seats changed on the board of supervisors and then yeah, they banned so, it again. Yeah, so even after they'd gotten to the point of actually having ordinances in place, having people in the permit process, people that already – they had a taxing system, people that already paid permit fees. They bought land. They bought set land up businesses. And yeah. invested. Yeah, a tremendous amount of investment that had gone into starting this legal industry. And then there was a sea change with the board, and they said, no, we're, we're out of that. We're going to ban it all. And they made a decision – to not refund money that people had put into this short-lived legal Millions system. of dollars of tax money. Yeah. 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 And so there is a lot of litigation going on there now. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it would be shocking if that litigation doesn't side 100% with the people who had been, you know, investing tremendous amounts of money based on this promise that had been made by the county there. But we'll have to see what happens. It, it's a really interesting situation and I think throws some light onto how things are going on the North Coast. But And it, it also highlights what I think is one of the one of the fundamental failures of communication around this issue that we still have statewide and at the local government level. What do you mean? Which is and and maybe not failure of communication, but more of like you know, cognitive dissonance okay. around the issue. In that you get people saying, you know, we don't like what we see with this industry. There's a lot of crime. It's all underground. They're smuggling it in, in and out of the area. It's being sold through unlicensed retailers. The product isn't safe. It's not being tested. And you know, the cultivation is happening you know, without regulation. And everything we see about it is bad. Therefore, we want to ban it. And the problem is that what you're saying is we want to maintain the situation we have. If you ban it, right. you're supporting all of the bad stuff that you see. Right. And so it's a completely illogical response to what you see because, you know, that's what you already have. Without a regulated, without the opportunity for a regulated industry, then all of the illegal activity is what you're going to continue to see. Right. There's a huge market there. And as long as that market is there and 
that there's enough profit to reward that kind of risk, people will do it. So if you want to see a change in it, then you need to and get away from all the black market activity. You have to allow an alternative. And that right. alternative is a well-regulated legal industry. And, you know, yeah, we're having problems a year into it, but, you know, that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. You know, back to the comment about the timber industry and how long it's taken to get, you know, all of the different you know, regulatory arms of that with California Department of Forestry, now Cal Fire, with the state and regional water boards, with the Department of Fish and Game, now Fish and Wildlife, and everyone figuring out kind of the balance of power between these different agencies, and in a few cases with local agencies too. And we were both part of organizations that spent a lot of time yeah, hammering and a on lot of outside agencies. forces that right. were, in many cases, kind of providing friendly litigation to force their hand into doing what they knew they needed to do or right. to support their kind of inserting themselves into a process with these other agencies that were not wanting to make room for them. Right. The process of regulation is long and complex. Right. And when you come up with legislation you know, to— The litigation part's yeah. even longer and more yeah. complicated. Yeah. <laughs> right. You're making your best guess at what you need to regulate and how to do it. Mm -hmm. And given how complex it's going to be, how many aspects there are with you know, environmental and consumer issues and public health and all of the different aspects to it, it'd be ridiculous to think that you're going to get anything more than maybe two-thirds of it in the right ballpark Okay, that, off the start. <laughs> that all strikes me as obviously correct. This is a, a tremendously complicated situation. Yeah. What remains hard for me to swallow is the fact that in this public conversation we're now having regionally, locally, at the state level, mm -hmm. and even nationally, as we see with these stories in the New York Times and the Washington Post, the question of environmental impacts has largely dropped off the table again. And here we are with the San Francisco Chronicle editorializing that clearly what we need to continue to appropriately evolve this industry mm -hmm. is less regulation, less red tape. And again, our concerns with respect to the eel and to critically endangered salmon and steelhead is that we are already losing biodiversity. We're losing endangered species because of an industry that's already too big and already has too many impacts here on the North Coast. So it's it's frustrating to realize that, you know, those concerns really aren't front and center for a statewide system that's looking at a state with 30 plus million people in it and mostly focused on the places where those people are. Well, I th would disagree with the Chronicle's assertion in there <laughs> right. because the problem is that we, we have zero regulation of more than half the market. It's an important with point. The, with the black market, you know, it's right. completely unregulated, and that's right. where you know, the vast majority of the harm is coming from. And so what we need is more of the industry to fall under the regulated umbrella. Mm -hmm. And right now, when we don't have that and don't have that opportunity in the majority of the counties and cities around the state, again, that's a huge black market that is now somewhat officially sanctioned by you know cities and counties that are saying we're going to ban it. And so the only way for people to, to grow it, to access it, to you know, move it around is going to be through illegal means. So that's the end that we need to address, and in that end, we clearly need more regulation. We need to you know, have those counties, those cities come on board with this movement towards creating a statewide regulated industry mm -hmm. because you know, the only effective way to defeat the black market is to outcompete it. And right now, there's places where it's working, and there's places where it's not. Right. 
If you're just tuning in, folks, this is the Eco News Report. I'm your host, Scott Greeson, Conservation Director with Friends of the Eel River, and I'm talking today with Mark Lovelace. Mark's working these days as a cannabis policy advisor with HDL companies. I want to talk briefly about this, the testing issue. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folks may not be aware of what happened here. A, a company was found to be falsifying reports? Yeah, and I don't know. And the, there's a bigger background to this, which is the the bottleneck. Yeah, and that is definitely the biggest bottleneck. You know, that of all of the thousands of licensed businesses around the state, cultivation, distribution, manufacturing, retailers, there's this very small numbers of testing laboratories, right. and they have to insert themselves into this product stream multiple times. All the raw cannabis has to be tested before it goes to a manufacturer, mm-hmm. and if it goes to an extraction company. Then the extract has to be tested before it can go to someone who's going to infuse it into something else, and then it has to be tested again before it goes to retailers. So there's a huge need for these testing companies, and there's only, I think, 32 currently. I, I have 52, but 52? Okay. Yeah. okay. I'm not sure which one of yours is correct, but the point is it's not very many for yeah. a very large state. And this requirement only came into effect uh, I think you said the middle of last year, in the beginning of the first year of the yeah. legal market. The requirement was there, but they were allowing, the regulators were allowing some lag time for... So the previous you know, stock. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah, to allow some of the stock that's already in the industry or in the market to work its way through before saying, no, it all has to have been tested you know, all along the way. And so there's a, a lot of pressure on these existing testing laboratories to process a lot of material. Right. And there was a case, and I can't remember offhand where, where this one was located, where it was found that they'd been falsifying the reports because they couldn't get their testing equipment to test to that level of granularity that they needed to. And so they had a kind of a failure of their own equipment or expertise. And rather than just saying, oh, we can't test for this one, this one aspect, this one contaminant, they just were allowing it to pass and falsifying those reports. They've, of course, lost their license at this point. But that, I think, points to one of the details in here, which is there's the regulatory requirements that can be put in place, and then there has to be you know, the realistic ability to meet those requirements. And so if you had a level of testing detail that maybe the technology isn't quite there yet or maybe there's not enough collective expertise among the workforce in California to be able to operate it correctly. There's a number of things that may have been, you know, explanations for that. But I think that that should still be kind of looked at as a an outlier. You know, that should not be an indictment of the testing labs across the state. However, it does point out that that is definitely an area of opportunity for anyone that wants to find a place with a lot of good opportunities for steady work. Testing would be one of them. Yeah, PhD in analytic chemistry would help. A couple of gigantic issues that would easily take up a half hour of conversation in any Humboldt County living room. Tax revenues are way off of what we were hoping for. The New York Times reports that California collected only about $234 million in cannabis taxes, where Colorado, with a population half the size of Los Angeles County, collected about the same amount last year. So that's a big issue. Are we going to be able to fund the regulatory measures we need with taxes on this industry. And then the second one is big growers and little growers. How is this system sorting out? There was a a promise made, I think it's fair to say, that California was going to valorize the efforts and the, the work of small farmers and keep them in place. And it doesn't look like that's happening. 
Well, two very different yeah. questions there. The first one on the taxes, again, I would say give it time. Right. You've got, again, well, you know, well below half of the state that has a legal industry. And so you shouldn't expect to have the taxes approach that level. There's a tremendous amount of commerce that's happening in those counties and cities that don't have a legal system. And so, of course, they're not paying taxes on that. Right. So it's going to take time. And, and when I talk about those, that half of counties and cities or greater than half that are still in a ban, a lot of them are in not truly a ban situation, but a moratorium situation. A lot of them said, we want to ban this while we take a, you know, a good long look at how we want to regulate it. So, we so a lot of those going on. A yeah. lot of those that have moratoriums or bans are steadily moving towards regulation. And that's going to continue to happen. And I think that you know, two years from now, if we sit down, we're going to have a very different picture mm-hmm. of the size of this industry and the shape of it and the percentage that are paying taxes. The small farmers that were promised you know, to have this industry built around them, I think, first off, that was a promise that was made by people that weren't in a position to promise that. <laughs> Point taken. Yeah. And while we all value that as a former Humble County supervisor myself, you know, that that was a huge issue for us is how do we build this thing in a way that supports the large native industry that we already have and right. gives them an opportunity to move into right. this. There are things that government can do and there's things that government can't do. And that's what it really comes down to here. And government can set up some rules for you know for how the free market is going to work, but we don't get to really control it as much as some of us might like to. And the things that are killing the small farmers are normal functions of the free market. And that's a difficult thing to hear. Economies of scale. It's economies of scale. It's recognizing that. And I remember having this conversation with people, you know, ten years ago when we first started this, you know, talking about this. That when it becomes legal, the ability to grow really high quality cannabis is going to be a skill that can be, you know, bought on any street corner. There's so many people that know how to do that that you'll end up working for someone else who doesn't know anything about cannabis, but they know how to start and run and capitalize and all these things, uh, a business. Distribution, yeah. They're going to they're gonna right. come in. They're going to pull all that in together, and then they'll hire someone that actually knows a thing or two about cannabis. In a lot of cases, you're going to be disappointed at what they pay, and that's a lot of what we're seeing here. But that's the normal functioning of the free market. And that's also an agricultural industry. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, we're also a whole other topic. We're seeing cannabis slip more and more towards being a commodity, Instead of a prestige product, there's still room for it for that niche product that Humboldt County wants to hold out there. But more and more, the market is showing that they're not that interested in the details of which you know family farm it came from, especially when they're looking at you know a manufactured product concentrate. They're right. just buying a cartridge for their vape pen. Right. They just want to know you it's know, good. Yeah, that's and it good doesn't stuff. have pesticides it. in it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, thanks, Mark. Really appreciate your hard-earned perspective on these issues. I hope Humboldt County will find this a little bit illuminating and as we move into the brave new future. You know, the, just there's, if there was one last thing I would just totally. add to it is that from working around the state, I think people in the industry in Humboldt County don't, have, don't realize how good they have it. There are so many places where the regulatory oversight is so much greater than what people in Humboldt are dealing with. And there's a few places that I think that they'd be should thank their lucky stars that they're living up here still and working in this industry up here instead of some of these other places. All right. Well put. This has been the Econews Report. My name's Scott Greeson. I've been your host for the past half hour. I've been speaking with Mark Lovelace. 
who's a cannabis policy advisor with HDL Companies. And if you if you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. You can hear this broadcast again on the archive programs page of the station's website at khsu.org. The Econews Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Tune in again next week at the same time for the Econews Report.